prayer tonight. Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. We're thankful for uh, the chance to come together as your people and to hear from you and to hear your word. And so we just pray you'd be honored and glorified. Thank you for the, the music that we have heard, Lord, that uplifts your name. Thank you for uh, the grace that you have shown us through the blood of Jesus Christ, who has saved us, who has redeemed us. And so we praise you tonight, Lord, as we look at your word. Lord, teach us and guide us as only you can. Thank you for each one that's here. We pray for those who couldn't be here. Lord, and for those who may be watching uh, through the website, we pray that you would be honored and glorified here tonight. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome tonight, church. My name is Pastor Ryan. For those who may not know me, Pastor Mike is out this week. And so I'm, I'm filling in for him. I, I don't, is he done with Lamentations yet? He is? Okay. So, well, this is not Lamentations at all. We are um, going to be looking at Psalm 46. So if you'll turn with me there, go to Psalm 46. Spencer, I've already been informed that you, you read this at the nursing home today when you, when you talked to those folks. So I guess uh, you may be getting a double dose of this today. So, but we uh, are looking at this, this wonderful, beautiful psalm tonight. And so I'm going to jump right into it because there's a lot to cover. And I just want to make sure we get through it all. But um, as we look at this psalm, a couple of key introductory things here before we read it. Uh, you know, you, you don't have to glance at this world for very long to see that it's, it's, it's falling apart. Our world was, this, this world that we live in was not meant to last forever. In many ways, when you read the whole storyline of the Bible, it seems that this creation was made to eventually be unmade and give way to a new creation. That's the whole storyline and thrust of the Bible when you read it from start to finish. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't often feel very secure in this world. I don't feel... Uh, at home in many ways. You know, we get glimpses of security. We like being safe in our homes and our families. And when we come together as God's people, we get these glimpses of security and safety. But in our spirits, we also feel homesick because we know there's, there's more to it than this. And that's why in the Old Testament, God is often referred to as um, our portion or as our refuge or our shelter, as we'll see in this psalm. And we abide in Him because... You know, he is the only lasting thing in this world. Uh, when, when God unmakes everything and remakes it one day, the only thing that will be left is him, his word, and those whom he has redeemed. And so we, we worship him as our refuge and as our shelter. He is the refuge when nations around us are raging, which seems to be a constant, when kingdoms stand on the brink of collapse, and he's He'll always be our refuge from now until creation is remade one day. So that's the theme of this song, psalm. That's what we're looking at. It's the 46th psalm. And so let's read this. I'm going to start by always re always read the title of the psalm, and then we read the verses of the psalm. So I'm going to do that. So follow along with me as I, I read Psalm 46, and then there'll be a few introductories. There is a, a, a worksheet, a few blanks, just to keep you honest. I put a few blanks on here um, throughout the night. So you will have to write a few words down, and um, I'm not going to spell them for you. I'm just hoping you know how to spell all the ones that aren't there. So, uh, but if, uh, if you don't have a copy, they're here, and I think there's some out, outside in the foyer as well. But let's read this psalm, and, um, and then do some introductory notes about it, and then let's, let's break it down a little bit tonight. So here's Psalm 46, titled, God is our fortress. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song... Verse number one, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage and kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease in the end, on the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So, there's a few introductory things here. Four things that I want you to notice before we dive into this psalm. One, if you look at kind of uh, reading the Bible 101, if you read a psalm, don't ever skip over the little introductory notes. Those introductory notes often describe for us a lot about the psalm, what it may be about, who wrote it. If there was a situation, a historical context that uh, maybe the psalm was written in, in this particular one, we see that this psalm was written, uh, uh, it says, of the sons of Korah. So notice that it was written or made by the sons of Korah. And who, who are they? So when you read that, there's a number of psalms in, this, in the book of Psalm that was written by them or composed by them. And who are they? Well, if you, most of you may have a, um, maybe a cross-reference there that directs you to a couple of passages in the book of Numbers, Numbers 16, 1 through 40, and Numbers 26, 11, for the answer of who are the sons of Korah. Korah, if you go back to number 16, led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. He had assembled about 250 uh, chiefs of the congregation against Moses and Aaron, and they challenged the authority of Moses. He's, this, he's the one directing them. He's the one going and meeting before God. He's delivering to them the words of God, and eventually they just get tired, and they say, who puts you over us? And they challenge the authority of Moses and Aaron. So Moses, heartbroken in this passage, falls to the ground. And in verse 5 of number 16, he says, In the morning the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy, and he will bring him near. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So it was a challenge. The next morning we're going to go out. God's going to draw whichever one of us is his man or his men. God will draw us to himself. In other words, you don't want to be in the group that God does not draw to him the next morning. So the next morning, Moses and Aaron, Korah and the 250 that he chose assembled before the Lord in front of the, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And God said to Moses and to Aaron to separate themselves from the 250. So God separated Moses and Aaron from the 250. Why? Because he said he was going to consume them. So God op opened the earth and he swallowed all of those who had rebelled against Moses and who had rebelled against Aaron, Korah, all the 250, not only them, but their wives and their children. In all, over 14,000 people perished in that rebellion. When you look at the whole context of the verse, there was also a group of people plagued because they continued to have hard hearts and God sent a plague and 14,000 people, over 14,000 people perished in that rebellion. But in Numbers 26, 11, um, Moses, there's more instruction being given there. And it just, 2611 just simply tells us, but the sons of Korah did not die. So for some reason, God 
preserved the sons of the leader of this rebellion. And uh, they and their descendants were made servants at the tent of meeting. They were musicians, they were doorkeepers, composers. Charles Spurgeon said of the sons of Korah, they have been spared and their father and all his company and all the children of his associates were swallowed up alive in their sin. Numbers 26, 11, they were, the, they were spared they were the spared ones of sovereign grace, preserved, we know not why, by the distinguished favor of God. It may be surmised that after their remarkable election to mercy, they became so filled with gratitude that they addicted themselves to sacred music in order that their spared lives might be consecrated to the glory of God. So for some reason, Korah's sons were spared God's judgment, and they turned into servants and musicians um, in uh, service to God. And so we have a lot of psalms by the descendants of Korah and the sons of Korah um, in the book of Psalms. So it's, that's the first thing to notice. The second thing, if you'll notice, this, this psalm is naturally broken down into three sections by three selahs, or rest. A selah is a Hebrew term denoting a pause or an interruption. It's a musical rest in the psalm. It's believed that selahs were uh, a pause during the psalm to reflect on what came before to think about it and to worship in your own heart. So this term was used over 70 times in the Old Testament, almost exclusively in the book of Psalm and three times in the book of, of, of Habakkuk. So this Psalm is naturally broken down into three sections, which tells us there's three main points or aspects to this Psalm that God is teaching us. The third thing to notice is the apocalyptic language of this particular Psalm. Because we see a lot of phrases and we see a lot of terms in this Psalm that uh, denote the end of times when catastrophic things are happening in creation. Mountains being moved into the sea, the earth melting, kingdoms tottering and falling and nations raging, instruments of war being demolished, God finally being praised among all the nations of the world. So it's, it's note the apocalyptic nature of the psalm, which actually plays a pretty huge part in how we interpret and read and teach the psalm. And then the fourth thing, notice that three times God is referred to as a refuge or a fortress, which again tells us this is a major theme of the psalm. This is, there's two different Hebrew terms that's both translated refuge here, and we're going to examine those in a bit. But a major theme of the psalm is that God is our refuge. He's our high place, our shelter, even when creation is falling apart, and God will always be the refuge of his people. So those are some four kind of introductory notes to this psalm that I wanted to cover real quick. And then let's take what's time we got left to look at and examine the rest of this psalm because all those introductory notes are going to help us know how to read and break this down. So point one and the, and, uh, the fill in the blank there. So that we're going to look at the three stanzas here. So stanza one, when creation comes apart. When creation comes apart. So this is in verses one through three, if you'll look at those again. Verses one through three. And we begin in verse one in this psalm, seeing that what, what really is the theme of the whole psalm. God is our refuge and he is our strength. So this theme runs throughout. The word refuge in Hebrew is a term that just, it just, it just simply means that. It's refuge or shelter. The idea of something that protects you from storms or protects you from danger. And notice that God is also referred to in, this, in verse 1 as our strength. He is our might. He is our power. Other nations may rely on their own might and they may rely on their own power or on how many chariots or how many soldiers or how big their army is. 
But the people of God exclusively rely on the power and the might and the strength of their God. Because there's many times in Old Testament where in Israel's history where they outnumbered their enemy and still lost. So God was their shelter. God is their strength. And many places in the Bible also refer to him as that. Other nations um, did not have God as their strength. And they saw something different and unique about Israel. This verse also says that God is a present help in trouble. So he is referred to as a help, which seems odd that God would help us do anything. But often in scripture we see that, that God is our help. He is a present help. So um, he assists his people as they're going through turmoil. He's with them. He isn't standing far off. He isn't unconcerned about what his people are going through, but he's right in the thick of it with his people, which if you read this psalm, he better be in the thick of it with his people because everything's falling apart around him. But he is a present help to them. So, and this isn't, by the way, none of these things aren't just true of God during times of turmoil, though. He is with us when we're going through trials. He is with us when things are falling apart. But this is the daily posture of God, right? This is who he is towards his people by nature. He doesn't show up when the world goes dark no, he's always there. God shows up on time because he's never left his people to begin with. Right? We may feel his, we may feel his presence more when things are dark, um, when darkness presses in on us, but he is as near to us when we're on the mountain as when we are in the valley. It's his eternal posture to be a shelter and to be a refuge for his people. That's who God is. So we should come to realize that in the mundane as well as in the chaotic, that God is with us, God is over us. Uh, one commentary I read in preparation for this said, because God's people have found help, refuge, and strength in God during ordinary times, they will not fear in extraordinary times. So when we realize that God is with us in the mundane, when the hard times come, we know that he's still there, and we lean on him all the more. So if we, if we worship him, if we find strength in him during the ordinary times, then we will not fear during extraordinary times. And if you notice the imagery immediately after that verse turns, right? In verse 2, we will not fear. Why? So we go from worshiping God as our refuge to creation essentially being destroyed, to creation being unmade. The picture that's being painted in verses 2 and 3 for us here is this cosmic upheaval. The fabric of the universe, the fabric of creation is coming unraveled. But because God is our refuge, we don't have to fear that. The people of God don't have to fear that. This portrays God's people standing really in an unflinching posture, not surprised, not fearful, as all this commotion and all this chaos are unfolding around them. And they're not standing there unflinchingly, not because of their own strength or because of their own resolve, but because God is their refuge, their help, and their strength. He is with them. And if the Creator is with them, then they can stand even when creation's being unmade. It's very vivid, vivid, right? The mountains, which when you look at a mountain on this earth, and I've, I've been in some. I grew up near the, near the Smoky Mountains and near the Appalachians, and I've spent time in the Himalayan mountains. Um, mountains are some of the most steady and enduring. If any of you all ever stood and looked at a mountain and said, that'd be easy just to be picked up and moved, right? Like they're, they're some of the most steady and stable features on this earth, and they seem immovable, and enduring, but here we see that they're being upended and they're tossed into the sea. 
this psalm says. The earth is giving way. And some of your translations may say that the earth is being changed or it's being removed. What once was is not anymore. It's giving way to something new. And we notice, too, that the author of this psalm, is, he's personifying nature. That's one of the points there, uh, point C. We see this personification of nature, which we see a lot in the book of Psalms. It's not uncommon there. Water is roaring, mountains are trembling. Creation itself, right, is recognizing when God is going to make all things new. It's used to illustrate a point, right? The author of the psalm is personifying nature to illustrate a point that creation itself is responding to this act of God. And we see this in the New Testament as well. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I put this verse for you, 8, 19, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's, that's personifying language. It's giving creation human characteristics or human traits to illustrate a point that even creation itself waits. That's a human characteristic with eager longing, right? As it has emotion for the revealing of the sons of God. It feels the weight of sin. It feels the weight of the curse and it's awaiting God to redeem it as he redeems us. So that's the picture being made here, that God is undoing all things, but his people are standing safe in the shelter of who he is. All those who take refuge in him do not have to fear. This is, this is not their end, right? The mountains, they thought, protect, you know, but there's some nations that depended on mountains to protect them, to swallow them, um, but it's swallowing them instead. The island nations who may feel protected because of their isolations are going to find themselves being consumed by roaring waves. But the people of God find shelter in Him. So all the people who found shelter in their surroundings, in their isolation or in their fortification behind mountains, they're going to come crumbling down, but God's people will stand. So this is a huge reminder to us to not fear. Our God stands ready to protect us. And the same God that we find shelter in when the world is unmade is the same God who is over us when we grieve, uh, when we are in uh, deep, dark shadows in our heart, when we feel alone. So it's not just when things are physically going crazy. It's when our own minds are working against us, or our own hearts are uh, telling deceitful things to us, or we're going through a matter of spiritual warfare. God is there as a shelter over you in those times as well. When things are hard, when you experience loss, when you experience sickness, when you experience isolation or loneliness, God is a shelter. He is a refuge over his people. He is your help. That's a main message of this. God is your help. When things are going bad and when things are looking up, God is still there. We often forget when things are going well that, that maybe things are going well because God is our shelter, because He is our refuge, and the reason things are going well is because He's standing over you and protecting you from the things that would make it not go well in your life. So God is always our refuge, and He is our strength. So that's stanza one. That's stanza one. Stanza two, and this is verses four through seven, four through the next Selah, tells us about when new creation dawns, when new creation dawns. So he is still our refuge and will always be our refuge. So in verse 4, we have this um, imagery of a stream which is flowing through the heart of the city. Now, in Jerusalem, the actual city of Jerusalem, which is what most scholars would say this is referring to, the city of God being 
in that time, if you were a Hebrew, if you were a, a Jewish person reading this psalm and you hear about the river flowing through the city of God, that, that, would, be, that would be Jerusalem. Um, but Jerusalem itself does not have a major, it has streams and creeks probably, but it does not have a river that flows through the heart of the city, as is mentioned in this psalm. There are small streams, but no river. So I think in Scripture you have many uh, allusions to streams which refer to blessings or refer to provision. And... Um, particularly for God's people. And this is certainly in view here in the midst of all this calamity that's going on. There's this part of creation that's unshaken, right? This city of God where the people of God dwell is unshaken. This holy habitation of the Most High God, he's still providing for his people, but he's, he's still being a refuge for them. So the end of all things is still in mind here, but also this is a reference, like I said, to Jerusalem, the city of God. His blessings float out if you think about Scripture, God's blessings flowed out of Jerusalem to the rest of the world as the gospel dispersed from Jerusalem when God's people were persecuted in Acts chapter 8. Um, after the stoning of Stephen, the, they began to be persecuted. They left Jerusalem and wherever God's people dispersed to, the gospel went with them. So in a lot of ways, God blessed the nations from Jerusalem. But in a lot of ways... Jerusalem stood as a type, as, as a prototype. It was a shadow of what was to come. You know, God had blessed Jerusalem, had established it as his dwelling among his people. The temple was a constant reminder to the people that God had chosen them, had chosen to dwell among these people in Jerusalem. And it represented a place of safety. It represented a place of provision for the people of God. Uh, the, name, the name Jerusalem actually means city of peace. But again, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the main fulfillment, right? It wasn't the main fulfillment of God's dwelling among his people, but it was a foreshadowing. Jerusalem stood there as an example of what God was going to do for all of God's people one day. It was a foreshadowing. It pointed back to the Garden of Eden as a reminder to people that there was a time when God physically walked among his people in a garden, right? It pointed them back to that, which was the first place that God walked among his people, there, and there was a river in Eden um, at that time. There was life, there was provision, there was food, and it was a dwelling place of God and men where God came together. But Jerusalem also gives us a taste of what is to come, right? Of what has not yet happened. John, <clears throat> the Apostle John, had a vision of this new dwelling place, this new Jerusalem in uh, the book of Revelation that was coming down. So in Revelation 21... And I've uh, printed these verses for you here, so we don't have to spend a lot of time flipping. But in Revelation 21, John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then, in Revelation 22, we get a picture of the river of that new city. So in the real Jerusalem, in the earthly Jerusalem, there is no river running through the heart of the city. But in the new Jerusalem, there is a river that runs through the heart of the city. It's referred to as the river of the water of life. In Revelation 22, 1, says, Then the angel showed to John, showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, 
with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So you also see in the New Testament where Jesus points the, he uses these allusions of waters of life to himself in John chapter 4 and in John chapter 7. Jesus says that he was the embodiment of what this living water was. Whatever life it gives comes from him. After all, in the New Jerusalem, if you'll notice, the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so that's where the water proceeds. And so that's the idea being conveyed here in this psalm. And we as New Testament Christians, we can read that and we can see something greater because God showed in a revelation to John the Apostle what that new city and what that river was going to look like. So that's verse 4. Verse 5 tells us that everything that is blessed about this city is blessed because God is in it. He's in the midst of it. God is there. And again, this is an allusion to the New Jerusalem of which Jerusalem was just a type and of which the church also, by the way, is a type. We are a gathering of God's people. God dwells among us. We are now his dwelling. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about our bodies being the temple by which the Spirit of God dwells in. He dwells in us as his people and will one day dwell with us physically again. So this is a completely different picture than what we saw in verses 2 and 3. All right, mountains were falling into the sea. The sea is foaming, it's chaotic, the earth is melting, but the city of God, where God is, where his people are, where the river flows, is unshakable. And God, by his power, is sustaining his city, sustaining his church in the midst of all this turmoil that's going on around them. Uh, an, old, an Old Testament scholar uh, who lived many, many years ago, W.S. Plummer, in his commentary on this passage, said, the, the, the majesty of God is in the midst of the city. God, with all his nature and perfections, is on the side of his church. All her history shows that the presence of God, this is important, listen to this, all of church history shows that the presence of God is sufficient to give stability to his church in any circumstance. God will help her. God will help his church. So when chaos rages around us, when we can be uh, it seems when we, we, our confidence is shaken, we can, be, we can be confident that God's city, His people, will not totter, we will not melt, we will not be moved, though nations rage, though mountains crumble, <clears throat> and they're moved, and the church, under the refuge of God, is not going to be shaken, it's not going to be destroyed, and then when morning dawns, He will help. And that's what verse 5 says, God will help her when morning dawns. And so, one author says that the sunrise is a very powerful image of hope, connoting a coming awake after sleep, which likewise suggests resurrection from the dead. This reference to God helping Jerusalem when morning dawns, really it it hints at the dawning of life on the morning of new creation, when all of those who are asleep in death will be raised to life. So, that's verse 5. Verse 6 zooms us back in on the destruction of the world going on around. So in verses 4 and 5, we get a glimpse of God's people. All this stuff is going on all around. Verses 4 and 5 give us a glimpse of God's people. They're sheltered. They're in the refuge of God. They're taking safety in Him. And then verse 6 zooms back out on the destruction of the world. It's an interesting verse. You know, we've already seen allusions to God being the creator and the uncreator of the current world. What He made, God will one day unmake and remake into something new. And so while God's people and God's city are protected by him, 
the nations on the outside are still raging. Mountains are still tottering. They're being moved. They're being destroyed. And so the idea is being painted that all that once represented stability is dissolving. Right? God, by his power, is destroying it. God, this is, it's, it's such a powerful phrase because it says, God utters his voice and the earth melts. God utters his voice and the earth melts. God can and he will end it all by the power of his word one day. Which is interesting because God's vowels, his consonants, his syllables, his phrases, the way he puts together sentences and those things cause... If you think about it, God's word brought creation together, right? God's creation, if you studied science much, you look at the creation of an atom. Protons and neutrons come together and they make an atom. And if you put enough of those atoms together, they create molecules. And when you put these molecules together by the power of God, they create substance. They create what we have on this earth. And God brought all of that together by the power of his word. And by the power of his word, the earth and the universe, which sprang into existence because he uttered it into existence, one day he's going to utter a word and basically cause all of that to dissolve. Everything that God said that brought things together will one day cause everything to dissolve and be separated. It will be made new by his power. I love how Charles Spurgeon spoke of verse 6. So here's a, I'm going to quote somebody who says it a lot better than I do. With no other instrumentality than a word, the Lord ruled the storm. He gave forth a voice and stout hearts were dissolved. Proud armies annihilated. Conquering powers were enfeebled. At the first, confusion appeared to be worse confounded when the element of divine power came into view. The very earth turned to wax. The most solid and substantial of human things melted like the fat of rams upon the altar. But anon peace followed. The rage of man subsided. Hearts capable of repentance relented, and the implacable were silenced. How mighty is a word from God! How mighty the incarnate word! Oh, that such a word would come from the excellent glory, even now to melt all hearts in love to Jesus and to end forever all the persecution, wars, and the rebellions of men. And God will utter a word one day that will put all of those things to rest. God will remake everything by the power of his word. That God that can do so much, he can create so much by speaking it into existence, and he can dissolve so much by speaking a word. That God stands as a shelter over his people. He is with his people. He is a refuge. It's repeated again here in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is our stronghold. And one of these days, we're going to walk on a remade earth because he is our fortress. And he will be our fortress when this current age and everything that's in it comes crashing down by the power of his word. So we can look forward to a day when there's a great purging coming, but this, his church will stand and they will walk upon a new earth, down the streets of a new city, hand in hand with God, who is their shelter. So for now, though, we can view our troubles and our small afflictions because we know that the God who has the power by his word to shake the heavens is with us and he's over us, providing shelter as he is pictured in these verses here. And then we come to the final, uh, the, the next, the second Selah of this passage before we move on to verses 8 through 11. We'll grab some water here. Or I may, my voice will stop working in a minute if I don't. Um, so your final, the final point, the final stanza 
here is when God is finally exalted among the nations of the earth. So as you can see, this is a, in a way, it's, this, this psalm is meant to comfort us as his people in the here and now. We can read it, we can be comforted by it. But it's also, um, I would call it an apocalyptic psalm because it, it views things that have not happened yet, right? Things that God will do, <clears throat> and we know he'll do it because the book of Revelation says he was, he will, but it hasn't happened yet. So we can have hope in what's to come, but we can also take shelter in him now. So this third, this concluding stanza here, you know, earth has done its worst, but it's been decimated. The enemies of God and his people have been overthrown. Um, and then God beckons his church, beckons his people, come behold the works of the Lord. Come behold what I've done. Mountains have fallen into the sea. Seas have raged. Nations that were once strong and mighty have toppled. All of creation has come unraveled. The people of God who've been sheltered by the power of God, God says, come, come behold what I've done. How he has brought desolations on the earth. And this seems like an odd passage. You know, all this destruction and God's coming and beckoning his church saying, look, look what I've done. This word desolation gives the idea of being left stunned, left in awe. Uh, the idea of something that is, uh, leaves people in horror. Um, something that's laid waste. It's awful. It's an awful thing. This desolation. And we also know that if God does it, you know, if, if we try to do, if we were to, in our own power, try to take over the world and remake the world, <coughs> we might succeed a little bit, right? But we would fail. We, there would be some places where we couldn't do anything. But when God does something, when God causes desolation, when God comes to defeat the enemies of his people, he does it in a, in a way where it's complete and it's final, right? No, no vestige of the previous world will remain when God is done. Everything will be remade. Everything will either be destroyed or renewed. And all that's left will be those protected under the refuge of the Lord. But we get an allusion to this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, which I believe I put a reference to. Yeah, I didn't print out the verses on your sheet, but I put a reference to. But God does the same thing for his church, by the way, in Revelation 19. Give us a glimpse of the church's response to this kind of desolation. After the the fall of Babylon is recorded in Revelation 18. Babylon represents the enemies of God as Satan and the beast. But John records um, rejoicing in heaven. So Babylon has fallen. The enemy of God, the great enemy of God, <coughs> has been slain. And John records rejoicing in heaven. Verse 1 says, After this, after the fall of Babylon, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice in a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her immorality, who has avenged her and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise God. All you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So God brings destruction, final destruction on his enemies in the book of Revelation. And God calls the church to come to behold and to praise him. Their response is worship. And all throughout Israel's history, God had been the fortress of his people. He had overthrown their enemies time and time again. 
But his people fell back into sin. They were dominated by foreign nations again, given over to the worship of false gods and idols. <coughs> Their rescue was never complete in, in the book, uh, in the Old Testament. But when Jesus arrived claiming to be the Messiah, maybe for a bit they had hope. Some people followed him for a while, but then his teachings got deeply personal and he called for sacrificial living. Take up your cross, follow me. Right? And they quickly turned on him. At his first coming, though, God defeated our greatest enemy of sin and death and he liberated us spiritually. But we still face trials. We still face, face spiritual enemies and ridicule. But one day, he will lay waste to all of his enemies, of all of his people, and he will liberate forever those who have taken shelter in him. See, if you look at this psalm and it talks about God being our refuge and God being our shelter, the ultimate fulfillment of that is the blood of Christ. Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. He resurrected from the grave. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And now all the people who call on him and who repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus, he promises to be a refuge for us and for his people against the wrath of God. Uh, Paul often refers to that as, as Christ being our propitiation. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. So we are sheltered from God's wrath because Jesus is a shield for us. Jesus is a shelter, a refuge for us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God being a refuge and an eternal shelter for his people. We can eternally rest under the banner of the cross. We can eternally rest because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. So, But the second time Jesus returns, he's going to annihilate the God's enemies. He's going to re fully redeem his people and we will praise God forever. So our God will make war cease. He'll shatter the instruments of war in his new city with his redeemed people. That's what it talks about, breaking the bow, shattering the spear, burning chariots with fire. These are all instruments of war that God is going to turn into to plunder. He's going to, uh, one passage says that God's going to take um, uh, swords and spears and turn them into plows. He's going to turn them from instruments of war into instruments of harvest that we'll use on the new heavens and the new earth. There'll be, a, there'll be no need for vehicles of war or instruments of war when, God, when Christ returns. The long rebellion of the enemies of God will be over. No army will gather against God. No nation will gather to try to conquer God's people anymore, not try to enslave them. All who repent will be consigned to their place. All who do not repent will be consigned to punishment. And all those who repented, trusted, will be glorified like Christ. We will be with him. And we will see him as he is, which is what the promise of 1 John chapter 3 tells us. So the psalmist is pointing, toward, pointing us towards a final and complete restoration of peace. Never again will there be strife among nations. What, what, what will it be like to live in a world where there's no strife? But not even... Not even a threat of strife. You know, we will live in a, in a recreated world where not only is there no strife, but there's no threat of future strife. We don't have to worry about at any point any rebellion raising up against God because all will worship Him and all will desire to worship Him. And never again will people influenced by sin um, rebel against God because there will be no sin. Christ will have redeemed us. We'll be perfectly glorified like Him. No strife on this recreated planet. So the psalmist wants us to long for that day. He wants us to look forward to the day where God will make war cease at the end of the earth. But while we wait, 
And this is our application, by the way. While we wait, we're still here in this world that has trouble, that has strife, uh, that has enemies of God and enemies of the church. So what are we supposed to do? What's the main application that, that God wants us to receive from this psalm? And I think that's what he tells us in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. You know, we should practice now what we will experience in that moment of viewing the desolation of the Lord, right? When all things are remade. The, the phrase in Hebrew, be still, that we translate as be still, in Hebrew it means to sink down, to relax, or to let drop, right? What is God calling for us to do? To practice relaxation, not some type of Zen Buddhist relaxation, but a resting on Him, the relief of knowing that He will one day set everything right. We, we breathe in and out the goodness of God. And we relax into Him. We let go and we drop into, into the protection of God. We sink down deep into Him, into His character, into who He is, into what He's done for us. And we know in that moment that He is God. See, when you, when you finally settle down and you allow God to quiet your heart and you sink into Him, you sink into His grace, you sink into the truth of what He has provided us in the Lord Jesus, God promises that in that moment of sinking down, of being still, of being quiet, God will reveal to you over and over again, every day, I am God. I think this is a daily thing. This is a one-time thing. We place our trust and our faith in the Lord Jesus, but I think God calls for us to every day to be still and know that He is God, to every day start our day by sinking into Him, relaxing into Him, letting everything go and falling into Him so that daily He can remind us, I am God. And when He reminds us of that, it really doesn't matter what else is going on around us because when you understand and you believe through God's Spirit testifying to you through the power of His Word that He is God, then the next day you can be still again. See, being still is a practice. It's something I believe that God calls us to do day by day. And when we do that, we will know that He is God. So right now, God calls for us to practice now what we will experience and do forever on the recreated earth. You know, right now we behold him by eyes of faith. We can look forward to the day, though, when creation is uh, unmade and remade by the power of his word, and we can take shelter in him because one day we will see him because the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. So God will be exalted among the nations. On the new heavens and the new earth, his glorified image bearers will walk. We will reflect his glory in every way, in every corner of this recreated world. God will be exalted in all places. You know, we work towards that now. We enter into places where Christ is not known. We share the gospel with people who've never heard about Jesus so that God may be worshipped in places on this earth where he's not currently worshipped. But there will be no place where God is not worshipped on the recreated earth. There will be no place where God is not honored and glorified when he makes all things new. So that's the day we wait for when God consummates the redemption of his people. So in conclusion, there's a lot we can learn from this psalm. I put a few points of concluding applications there for you. Um, uh, I think, if I'm counting right, there's about six of them there. And uh, you can read those. Um, but a big thing that we learn, <clears throat> I think, is this idea of being still and knowing that He is God. We can let down, we can sink in, we can relax into who God is. We can be still, we can know that He is God because He is our refuge and He is our strength. Um, I'm already two minutes over, but I'm going to hit this last part. It was said that Psalm 46 was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. Martin Luther, the uh, great 16th century reformer uh, in Germany. 
you know, he was certainly a man persecuted and he was made to go into exile because of a lot of his convictions about salvation and the Bible and he fought against the erroneous doctrine of the, and practices of the Catholic Church at the time. He was quoted as saying about this psalm during his darkest times, come, let us sing the 46th psalm and let them do their worst. He would also say, sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his, wor and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. So for Luther, this psalm inspired his classic hymn that I'm sure many of you know, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And so I'm going to end just by quoting the stanzas three and four of this psalm, and then we'll be done. So Martin Luther in this song says, And though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for reminding us that you are a refuge and you are a shelter to us, both in the good times and in the bad. You stand over us, protecting us, guiding us. Through the blood of Jesus, you have covered us and sheltered us from your wrath that is to come so that one day we can stand with the rest of the saints of this world, triumphant on a new heavens and a new earth. We can look over all that you have done and we can praise you, we can worship you. And we can live the rest of our lives with you on a recreated earth in your presence, walking with you as we were meant to. So we praise you. We thank you for all that you do. We pray you be honored and glorified in our lives the rest of this week. Help us to share the good news of your gospel with those we come across that may not know it, may not have heard it. Help us to be a witness for um, all that you've done. Thank you for being our shelter. Thank you for being our stronghold and our fortress. We praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed. Thank you all for being here tonight.